was normal. Okay, let's do it one more time. I'll count out loud. Three, two, one. Mental health is normal. <laughs> okay, but we'll say it the other. Yeah, three, three, two, one. Mental, Mental health, health is normal. normal. Hello, my name is Emily Angstreich, and today we'll be hosting Valerie. Hello, Valerie. Hi, Emily. So Valerie works for Families for Depression Awareness, which is an organization that, actually, Valerie, would you like to describe it? Sure. We are a national nonprofit organization, and we help families recognize and cope with depression and bipolar disorder to get people well and prevent suicides. That is our mission. That's amazing, and you guys are doing incredible work. So I'm, I'm curious, do you have a personal story or just any kind of experience with mental health that made you want to work for Families for Depression Awareness? Yes, Emily. I have depression, bipolar disorder, and suicide in my family, on my mom's side of the family. These are issues that have affected our family for years and years and even before I was born. So there are things that I wasn't told as a child that I found out later on and a lot of silence and some shame with talking about these issues. So it became really important to me when I started working for Families for Depression Awareness to tell other families that you don't have to be ashamed, you don't have to be silent and feel like there's something wrong if you have mental health struggles in your family. It affects people from all walks of life. I come from an African-American background, and, and oftentimes these are very stigmatized issues in our community. But I want other people of color and everybody in general to know that depression and bipolar disorder specifically are, are medical conditions. These are conditions that don't reflect who you are as a person. doesn't mean that there's something wrong with you. They are medical conditions that can affect people from all walks of life. Thank you for sharing your story. So I guess I'm just going to dive right in, just not only through your own personal experience, but just through your work with Families for Depression Awareness. Why do you believe it's important to talk openly about mental health? What effect does it have on the people that you work with? So it is very important to talk openly about mental health. It helps to eliminate the stigma around mental health issues by telling our family stories, our personal stories, and showing people, like I said before, that it can affect um, folks from all walks of life. It helps to eliminate stigma. The other thing that talking openly about mental health does is it helps dispel preconceived notions. People have an idea of what they think someone who has a mental health issue is like. Maybe they think they're lazy, they can't get their act together. What do you have to be so sad about? Um, some people think those with mental health challenges are dangerous. And so by talking openly about mental health, it helps to dispel those preconceived notions that people can have. It's also really important because it reminds people who have depression and bipolar disorder and family caregivers that they are not alone. They're not the only people in the world who are dealing with these issues. And that can oftentimes offer comfort. It shows you that there are other people who have gone through similar issues and come out the other end. So all of that can be accomplished by being open, by not being ashamed, and by talking to others. Yeah, and I completely agree with that. That's what I've found for myself and just the people around me 
being able to talk openly about it reduces so much of the harmful stigma. I know that you're the co-executive director for Families for Depression Awareness. What exactly does that entail? Do you do on-the-ground work anymore, or are you mostly behind the scenes? Oh, I do everything. <laughs> we are a, we say that we are small but mighty. We're a, a smaller team, but we have reach all over the country. Um, we, I personally, what I do is I help to oversee our programs, um, I work on strategic alliances with other organizations and corporations and government entities. I also do all of our um, fundraising through grant writing and individual donor cultivation. So I do a little bit of everything. And then on any given day, I could be helping to present a webinar or attending a <laughs> workshop. Um, I do pretty much everything. <laughs> uh, I sometimes do web design, and, uh, work on our website, do social media. So um, luckily I've done pretty much every job that there is to do in the organization. So at this point um, I am able to really get in there whenever we need extra help. Yeah, that's, I mean, bravo to you. That sounds like quite a lot, but it's very impressive. What specifically does Families for Depression Awareness do? I know you guys work specifically with helping the family unit, and I know you have like family programs and teen programs and the bipolar disorder program. What are your kind of strategies for going in and helping these families? Well, I already mentioned our mission, and we use our mission as the core governing way of organizing everything we do. So our primary purpose in the work that we do is to help the family caregivers through education, training, support, um, materials that they may need, all of these things, because we know that the family caregiver is going to be involved in a person's life no matter what. They'll either be a force for good or a force <laughs> not for good. So they're going to be there with you every day. So we believe that by empowering them, giving them everything that they need to be a positive uh, force in their loved one's lives, that we are greatly helping to increase um, positive outcomes for people who have a mood disorder. So we do that through various things. We have webinars, so these are online learning modules that people can attend for free and learn about anything from teen depression to adult bipolar disorder to stress. Um, we have in-person workshops that we do uh, mostly on the East Coast where we are headquartered, but we also have workshops that people can put on themselves dealing with, again, issues of depression and um, stress in adults and, and things like that. Uh, we offer print materials. So we have some great brochures, uh, depression and bipolar wellness guides for monitoring treatments. We have web tools, including our mental health family tree. You can go online and fill out as much of your family history as you know, and then print out a family tree to bring to clinician appointments. We find that it's very helpful for caregivers. And we also offer a um, depression wellness analyzer where somebody who is monitoring a loved one's treatment can enter information, kind of like a mood tracker, but, but much more detailed. And so through those web tools, again, these are our resources that we're offering to families. We also have care consultations. That's where we meet with families in our office and have a licensed clinical social worker or other mental health professional coach them through 
issues that they're going through or, or roadblocks they have. Maybe treatment isn't working anymore, or maybe the family just can't agree on how they should be moving forward. So that's something else that we do. And then we just take phone calls and emails and any other inquiries from families that are looking for support. Maybe someone has been recently diagnosed and they don't know what to do next, or maybe they have a loved one who they just know that a bunch of things are going on that are out of the ordinary and they don't know how to proceed. So we have, uh, we offer support um, for any family caregivers from all over the country who need it. Do these people come voluntarily to you or do you try and reach out to them first? Well, a lot of times they do seek us out and they find us and ask us for help, but we definitely do use partnerships with other mental health organizations, uh, other state entities, other um, community health clinics in order to get our message out there. So it's a bit of both. I know something that I've kind of seen is just like a, um, a lot of reluctance from the community that they're in sometimes to kind of reach out and get the help they need. I know you're more of a national organization. So have you experienced any of that reluctance or is it more just because you're a national organization you aren't in any communities where those kind of barriers exist well we do run across those barriers as well Um, you have in any given area of the country or even sometimes in the same city (laughs) you have people who have different opinions about what mental health looks like what help looks like and what their role is in that. And I'll just give the example of schools. We've been working with schools, we've been working on issues of teen depression for over 10 years now. And depending on what a particular superintendent believes, what individual principals believe, it that all of the, their viewpoints and their um, openness to providing services to students and parents, it can, it can affect so much of what is offered in a school. Um, we've seen schools that really embrace the idea of providing teen depression education to their students, to their staff, and to parents, and other schools that say, we don't want to open that can of worms. We're afraid that if we start talking about depression, all of a sudden, all of the students will say they're depressed, and we don't have enough school social workers or school psychologists to be able to handle that demand. What we always try to do is say, these issues are present, whether you address them or not, and by leaving them unaddressed, you could have um, unintended consequences. So it's better to provide education to everyone and to provide training and support for everyone. And we've also seen this sometimes in religious communities. There are some uh, religious institutions, we'll just take churches, for example, that are very open to providing education for their um, for their religious body on issues of mental health because they know it affects their families um, and others that aren't. So it really just depends. It depends on what people believe about mental health. Going off of that, do you think that the biggest barrier for people to be gaining access to mental health care is that community reluctance to talk about it? Or would you say it can sometimes even be a lack of resources? It can definitely be both. Yeah. (laughs) Stigma can, let's just say, for example, you live in a small town. In that town, there's 
one therapist <laughs> and everybody knows where he or she lives and everybody knows if you're going in and out of there that means you're quote-unquote crazy mm-hmm. that kind of stigma can really be a barrier to people accessing care so stigma yes it can absolutely be a, an issue and that's why it's important to work to overcome stigma um, other things that can really prevent people from getting care is enough providers. Um, there is definitely a shortage of, of psychiatrists, psychologists, licensed clinical social workers, people who do this work. That's why there's such an upswell in the peer support movement, um, trying to empower peers to have a certain amount of training so that they can fill in these gaps that where providers are not accessible or don't just don't exist. Um, so that's definitely a barrier. Mm-hmm. Having adequate insurance coverage, being able to pay out of pocket. I mean, financially, if you don't have coverage for these services, then some people can't, if they're choosing between their insulin for their diabetes and their mental health medication, their antidepressant, for example, um, oftentimes, you know, those uh, other health conditions will win out. And if, if somebody's making those choices, uh, they might go without their antidepressant or their mood stabilizers. So having the financial means to pay for services is definitely a barrier. Culturally competent care, this is particularly important because July, of course, is Minority Mental Health Month. Mm. Um, having providers that know and can serve your community and know your specific cultural, the things that make your, your cultural background unique is also really important. And so we need more people of, of diverse backgrounds to get into, uh, to mental, to become mental health providers. So these are some of the things uh, that can prevent people from getting care. Wow, that's, that's really interesting, especially the, um, just having more of a diverse kind of workforce within the therapeutic world. So that's, it's very interesting. At Families for Depression Awareness, do you guys have a pretty diverse workforce? Well, we have a diverse workforce for the size that we are, yes. Yeah. <laughs> and we also all represent everybody who works for and is on our board has a connection to our cause, and that's really important to us. Um, we represent the people that we serve, so that does give us an advantage, a very important advantage. We know what we're talking about. When I talk to caregivers about uh, what it's like to help a loved one or what it's like to have discord in the family um, around how you deal with a, a mental health issue, I know what I'm talking about. I'm, I'm, it's coming from experience. And so I can draw on that when helping people. And so we definitely represent the audience that we serve. I know your organization really specifically focuses on depression and bipolar disorder and I'm curious if there is like a relationship that you found between these two mental health struggles that has prompted this or if it's just because they're the two most commonly found mental illnesses like why have you decided to focus on those? So depression and bipolar disorder as you mentioned they are very very common um, in the population American population and beyond. We are an organization that does focus on mood disorders. So these are mental health disorders that affect your mood, either elevating or depressing mood. So depression falls under that, bipolar disorder, dysthymia, which is low-level depression that's ongoing. Um, these, these are all mood disorders. And we find that 
we can help caregivers. There, there are a lot of similarities in, in the advice that we give to caregivers who are dealing with these issues and in the steps they need to take to become advocates and to help their loved ones navigate mental health care services. The circumstances around other mental health conditions can be a little different. There are, of course, similarities and overlap, but um, helping a family that has a loved one who has paranoid schizophrenia may look very different than helping a family whose teen is dealing with depression. So we, we focus on mood disorders and we're, we're able to give good specific information to caregivers. And there are other wonderful organizations that um, deal with other kinds of psychiatric disorders um, that, that families can access. Also, our founder, uh, Julie Totten, she created this organization because mood disorders touched her family. She lost a brother to suicide in 1990, and it affected her and her family very deeply. He had undiagnosed depression, and she felt like there were no services, training, organizations out there for her. So she began Families for Depression Awareness in 2001 to address that that lack of um, focus on the family caregiver. And that's why we exist today. That's amazing. That's, well, I'm, I'm really sorry for her loss, but I'm really glad that this organization can exist to help people that have similar struggles. And I guess then that leads me to my final question, which is for anyone that's listening that is struggling with their caregiver's mental health or just their family mental health, what advice would you offer them? Which resources would you point them towards? What would you tell them to do? So if you are listening and you are a family caregiver or there's somebody in your life who is dealing with depression or bipolar disorder, I would say learn all you can about that person's diagnosis. Educate yourself as much as possible. There are wonderful resources out there. We have resources at Families for Depression Awareness. There are many other wonderful organizations and, and medical associations that can help you learn all you can so that you can be the strongest advocate possible and so that you know what you're confronting, you know what what your loved one may be going through and you can really recognize it and intervene successfully. Uh, keep your mind and your heart open. The, this is not going to be a linear journey. Uh, it doesn't. You don't start at point A and always end at point B in a straight line. Um, people who deal with depression and bipolar disorder, these are often episodic, cyclical. They may be doing really well for days, months, even years, and then have another uh, setback. So that's to be expected, and it doesn't necessarily mean that you're doing anything wrong. It's just the nature of having a mental health condition. So learn all you can. Be open. Uh, be, be caring. Self-care is also very important. Make sure that in in helping your loved one, you don't become stressed out and depressed <laughs> and overwhelmed because then who's going to help you? It, just, it can become a really difficult cycle. So make sure if you're a caregiver, take time for yourself. Remember your own health. And it may be necessary for you to get your own therapist um, so that you can work through some of the issues that, that come along with loving somebody or being in a family with somebody who has a mood disorder. Um, respect the person's autonomy and their, their own um, agency and decision-making process, but be ready to step in and help. Like I said, make appointments, drive them places. If, they're, if they can't really function as they normally would as a parent um, 
or or in their job as a caregiver that's where you can step in and really help them until they get through um, through the hard times Um, advocate that can that looks like voting that could be you know know who if if you are uh, if you really care about mental health care access and and the government's role in that research legislators on the the local state federal level understand what's at stake and and exercise your civic rights and vote accordingly and finally i would say hold on to hope and know that you're not alone because there are other people out there who've gone through the same thing or something very similar and have come out the other end. So we always want families to hold on to hope and to try to maintain that family unit because it really can make the difference in someone's life. That is very good advice. Thank you so, so much. You're welcome. It's been my pleasure to be with you and with your listeners. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Help I'm Normal. I'm Emily Angstreich, and I can't wait to see you again.